Welcome to The Real Money Show. This is a podcast, and it's a very interesting one. It's our very first that we've ever done. We're doing today with Steve St. Angelo of the SRS Rocco Report. We felt that his topic, which is energy and the discussion of its relationship with precious metals, deserved its own standalone podcast. The first one we've done, folks. We're happy that you would be here to take in this podcast with us. We thank you for listening. Now, this particular guest believes that the coming stampede in huge price rise in precious metal sector will be due to what he calls the falling energy return on invested, or as you will hear throughout this interview, EROI, and disintegrating energy industry. We're going to talk a little bit about that because it's a very interesting topic. And as an independent researcher, Steve St. Angelo from the SRS Rocco, started to invest in precious metals in 2002. I'll tell you, a little bit later on in 2008, he began researching areas of the gold and silver market that, curiously, the majority of the precious metal analyst community have left unexplored. These areas include how energy and the following EROI stand to impact the mining industry, precious metals, paper assets, and the overall economy. Steve considers studying the impacts of EROI on one of the most important markets in the world, which is precious metals, and in general, the overall markets of the world, he considers this to be of the utmost importance in his research. And for the past several years, he's written scholarly articles in some of the top precious metals and financial websites around the world, and we're very pleased to have him here on the show. Steve, it's great to have you here at The Real Money Show, and our listeners are going to be in for a treat as we discuss the questions we have for you today and your knowledge about the precious metals uh, markets are second to none. I have a question that might open up the discussion a little for us here today, and that question is pretty simple, and it, and it evolves around the idea of what you call the EROI, which we said in the introduction is referred to as uh, one of the most important aspects of the energy research you do and how it's related to precious metals. A lot of your work is centered around the energy return on investment, or as we said, the EROI. Can you give us a brief explanation of the EROI and let our listeners know a little more about what that is? Yeah, Darren, it's great to be here. A uh, lot, lot of interesting things to talk about. The, the energy return on investment is to simply, uh, to, uh, simply define it. It doesn't matter if you're a small organism, an animal, plant, human, uh, small business, large corporation, a country, or an empire. All survive on this principle of energy return on investment. If you consume more energy than the energy that you're getting, then, then you, you die, or the, the company goes bankrupt, or you go under, or the empire collapses. And this is exactly what happened to the Roman Empire. They built their empire, uh, the ancient Roman Empire, by acquiring, using military force, which was their energy. They put a lot of money and, and energy into their military. They took over these other regions, other states. They took their wealth. They converted that to more energy to build their armies. And the problem is, once they couldn't continue to expand, they had to survive on their energy return on investment of their farming, simple farming, human farming, which is like five to one. But they, need, they needed a much higher 10 or 15 one, let's say, but they could no longer expand, so they had to maintain all this stuff. They had to maintain all these defensive forts and positions. That costs a lot of money, which costs a lot of energy. So the Roman Empire collapsed because they could not 
sustain all that on their simple five to one. And that's what we get, Darren. When you go out and garden, when a human goes out, a person goes out and gardens, they put in one calorie of energy, they get five calories of food. Now, when we were hunting, hunting and gathering, it was even better. When you went out and hunted or gathered, it was one calorie of energy, and you got 10 calories of food. Today, we're in big trouble. Why are we in big trouble? Because we, most of our food now comes from using petrochemicals and, and, and uh, oil. Well, it's a huge net energy loser. We burn 10 calories of energy by the time we uh, plant harvest, process, and you get that food on your dinner plate, you burn 10 calories of energy to get one calorie of food. So this is, this is a bad deal. And the only way that works is because the oil has had a very high energy return on investment. So to, to summarize, our world is based on energy return on investment. You have to have enough profitable energy. I'm not talking about making profits in the energy industry. I'm talking about when the U.S. first started producing oil in a big way in the 1930s. We were producing 100 barrels of oil for the cost of one energy barrel. By 1970, it fell to 30 to one. Now, shale, even though we're producing a lot of it, almost 5 million barrels a day, its energy return on investment is 5 to one. Well, you see, here's a big problem, and I'll conclude here by saying it doesn't even maintain our food production distribution processing 10 to 1. So this is why we're seeing a lot of massive debt now in the system, and the shale industry is not making any money. So that's basically the energy return on investment, and that's why it's such an important factor. Energy drives the economy. Finance steers it. Well, that's interesting because that means that we're kind of on a slippery slope, and I would take it that, Steve, you believe not a lot of people are paying attention to this. I mean, I don't want to belabor the point too much, but the reason we're having on the show is to introduce the concept to our listeners. But in the world as a whole, are people not paying attention or are they just sweeping it under the rug in favor of sticking to the status quo? Well, you see, when we were connected to, when we were much closer uh, to uh, the environment, when we were producing our own food, we, we innately understood this relationship because we're so complex now. Energy, you see, energy has allowed us to become very complex and a lot of technology. We're so far removed, we don't understand it. We, we've lost that relationship. So we, you know, you just, you just go to the supermarket to get your food, you turn on the, uh, the button to get your electricity, but the energy is so important. Yes, that's, that's correct. We don't, most people don't take it to the root. And the root is the reason why, you see, here's the issue. There is manipulation by the Federal, Federal Reserve and governments and big banks. They are manipulating the market. However, the debt now, the, some people say they're putting the debt in there to, uh, to control the masses. That could be partly true, but you see, the problem is the falling energy return on investment to offset the problem of that, they're adding all this debt. The Roman Empire did it by debasing their currency. That's how they offset their falling energy return on investment. We debased our currency, but we've also added all this massive debt and derivatives. The Romans didn't do that. They just debased their currency. There wasn't a lot of debt going on. So, yeah, a lot of people there don't understand this because it's, it's, we've removed ourselves from that, that innate understanding. So if we apply the principle of that uh, declining scale 
and we look at today's modern oil industry, give us some insight, Steve, on what you see happening as far as it relates to the oil industry. I know in a recent article you talked about oil producers, and you just mentioned shale in particular, but oil producers getting less and less and less profitable. And over time, of course, it's difficult for the, the average person, especially anyone who's listened to our show, we've talked about it at length, but the average person who doesn't know anything about precious metals or energy or oil and its relationship to gold and so on and so forth, they're looking at the profitability of the oil industry and saying record highs, record amounts, gas prices going up. They're doing nothing but making money hand over hand, fist over fist, sorry. But ultimately, are you saying that the industry is essentially cannibalizing itself to stay alive? And can you expand on that a little bit? Yes, exactly. Let me start off by saying when we hit the 2007-8 U.S. housing market and banking collapse, we have to remember Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers went under. And Lehman Brothers was an investment bank that was was around since the Civil War, so gone in just a short period of time. During that collapse, it looked like the uh, it was like the end. Uh, but what was fascinating, the energy industry, the oil industry, was still in pretty good shape. I'll give you an example. Continental Resources, it, they, they, they pride themselves as America's energy champion. Right. Well, in two, 2007, Continental had $165 million in debt. And they were paying about $13 million to service that debt, $13 million a year in their interest expense. Fast forward to today, Continental has $6.6 billion in debt. And now they're paying nearly three-quarters, a third of a billion dollars, $300 million in their annual interest payment. So what happened? The shale oil was really never profitable. Art Berman is an excellent energy analyst. He has a new chart out. Mm-hmm. Three-quarters of the shale industry is losing money. Uh, Their free cash flow is negative. A a few are breaking even, and a few make money. If you net the whole thing out, Darren, since even at $100, and I'm looking at a chart by Bloomberg, the top four, uh, let's say, shale fields, Permian, Backen, Eagle Ford, and Nibrera, they're all negative free cash flow. So that means they're losing money. So this is what they've done. It's called a Ponzi scheme. So you get investors to invest money now, you pay them an interest, and then what you do is you say, I'll pay you back in 10 years. Well, Continental just had a new uh, billion-dollar new notes, senior notes. So they're paying off their new ones that are due coming up this year, and guess what? These new notes that are due aren't due to 2028. You see, that's because shale is not profitable. They're borrowing money. They're paying a higher interest rate that investors can't get anywhere else in the market. But the investors are never going to get their money back. And there's a huge debt wall coming due. It was like $15 million last year. It's $30 million this year. There and by 2022, it's $220 million. I'm talking billion. All those were billion. So what we've done, the shale energy industry is a Ponzi scheme. And at some point in time, that Ponzi scheme is going to collapse, just like all Ponzi schemes, and with it, U.S. shale oil production. Okay, so why, why then are people falling for this? Can't they see this by looking at the data and just simply doing what you've done to research and understand the industry better? Well, you see, this is very perplexing, because this is not like a hidden conspiracy. Right. You can see this. You, you, you can see it. 
uh, I think this is kind of like the mortgage-backed security uh, debacle, right? We all knew it was a joke. We all knew it couldn't last. How can you give loans to people who can't even afford to pay it? But that's what the industry had degraded to. So here's the issue. Um, there, the New York Times released a, uh, a few years ago a lot of geologists working for these major oil companies, Chevron, ExxonMobil, they're saying back years ago that it's a Ponzi scheme. However, a Ponzi scheme, as Bernie Madoff has taught us, can go on for quite a while before the world wakes up. And so that's what we're seeing now. Now, I think the, the oil price, though, is really making an impact. A low oil price is not good. And I think we're going to see much lower oil prices here over the next year or so because it's the record commercials have the record short position against oil in the last 20 years. And, and so I think we're going to see lower oil prices when the markets crack. It's going to even impact the prices to fall to become even more deflationary. So I really think my timeline is within the next two to five years, we're going to see a disintegration of the U.S. shale oil industry, and this is also going to impact the global oil industry as well. We hope you're enjoying the interview with Steve St. Angelo from SRS Rock Report, and if you are, you might want to take a look at guildhallwealth.com. That's the website where you can find out more information about owning precious metals, gold, silver, platinum, palladium, and we would love to help you out with that anytime you want to call. The number is one eight seven seven eight silver Again, the website is guildhallwealth.com. Now, without further ado, let's get back to the interview with Steve. Well, I, you know, it leaves me almost speechless, Steve, because when we knew you were coming on air, we started doing a little bit of research ourselves and looking into this a little bit more so. And one of the things that we talk about, we actually talk about there being four really important fundamentals uh, below the precious metals markets, of course, where we're experts in our arena and how they relate to all of the other details and aspects are kind of what we call event events that drive these markets. And the four fundamentals we typically talk about are the U.S. dollar, the threat of inflation long-term, geopolitics and supply and demand. Now, when you relate the discussion of geopolitics to oil, we, we quickly realize that doing a little bit of research, they're very intertwined. Do you have an opinion so that listeners get a better sense of the direction we might be taking this year on the role that geopolitics will play in the oil sector in 2018? Geopolitics plays a very important role. Uh, that's why we had the petrodollar. It's not, it's not a coincidence that we had the petrodollar start, right, in the early 1970s when U.S. Uh, conventional oil production peaked in 1970. And that's why we had the petrodollar starting during that time. And that's when we had the major in, inflationary period. Uh, and I think people need to understand, too, about the, uh, the oil. Uh, last year, we burned 25 billion barrels of conventional oil. The 15-year average of global oil discoveries is 9 billion. That's the 15-year average. We find about 9 billion. So that's, only, that's only maybe a third of what we're burning, but that's better. Last year, it was 2.4 billion. That's all we found. We, did, we found less than 10% than we burned. This is a bad deal. So uh, I think the geopolitics, I used to believe supply and demand was the major factor that determines price of goods, services, commodities, metals, and energy. It is. Uh, it, it is an impact. But the overall is the cost of production. 
all supply and demand do are bring the price above or below off the cost of production of that good or service. And so when you, when you have a crop failure or you have a geopolitical issue, like they shut down a pipeline, they blow up a pipeline, then, yes, we're going to see a spike. But these things don't last 20, 30 years. They last for a quarter, they last for a few years, and then they come down. So when you look at the price of something over 100 years and you average it out, its overwhelming factor, Darren, is what it costs to produce that thing. Right. And so it's – I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was saying right, exactly. Yeah, and, and so we have two factors going on now. We have an oil price that has moved up from 30 to $64. The commercial shorts, as we all know in the, in the gold and silver uh, market, when, they, when the commercials, J.P. Morgan, H, when these banks start adding commercials and they get to a peak, we see a sell-off. It's been, Ted Butler's been talking about this for years, and so that's how they kind of maintain it. Well, we, we, we're at a... We're at 674,000 short contracts against oil. And let me tell you, when it, when it crashed from 105 in 2014 down to 30, at that, at that maximum, the commercials only had 500,000. They have almost 200,000 more. So I really think even though we could see some geopolitical events in the Middle East, dealing with Russia and China and all the, uh, the yuan, you know, being trading oil in yuan, I, I do think we're going to see a sell-off in the price of oil uh, this year. Uh, and if we get this market correction, which is certainly overdue, it, it will impact it more. Now, if it happens at the same time of a geopolitical event, it's, it's anyone's guess what happens. But the commercials have always been the indicator. They're always the one that controls the price. So they, with, with this massive amount of, of commercial shorts, I believe we're going to see $40 oil again this year. So it's going to drop in price. Okay, that's interesting that you say that. What do you then, or how do you then, interpret the backwardation that's being experienced in the, well, I mean, West Texas Intermediate Crude and Heating Oil were in backwardation recently. Natural gas is typically weak in January and February. I know temperatures are changing all over the U.S., but what or, you know, how do you interpret that in the grand scheme of things? This is, this is the conversation that we can have on a whole hour. Maybe we should do it in the future. There's two factors, the cost of production and thermodynamics. Right. The issue is I see the price of energy, oil, continuing to decline, even though that goes against everything we believe in. Well, if the supply is going to fall, well, the, the price better go up, right? Well, we have to remember, where, do we, where, did, where does the market get the money to bid up the price? It comes from the energy. It comes from the energy. That's where the money comes from, the fiat dollar. It comes from the energy. If the quality of the oil isn't there, it's falling. And if the, the, the whole system that is producing this oil is consuming more of it, the net energy is falling with the energy return on investment. There's less real oil getting to the market. Then it's, it's not worth it. I use it. I use an example of a brand new car worth thirty thousand and a fifteen-year-old old one worth about three or four grand. You're not going to pay thirty thousand dollars for a fifteen-year-old car. Uh, all the embedded energy and all the parts have worn out. It's it's somewhat similar. And so the thing is, there's uh, the market can't. You see, we can't see this, Darren. We can't see this falling energy return investment because the market is so much debt 
and inflation, it's distorting it. We, we don't see it happening. But, and so when you have money printing and debt, you inflate the prices of things. So uh, if we have, once we have a market correction and, a de- and we go into, let's say, a depression, which I think we're going to hit a depression, then you have deflation. And we're going to have deflation of stocks, bonds, and real estate. And I say that because stocks, bonds, and real estate, they're based upon the economic principle of net present value. And it's like a time machine. All that means is they get their value from burning energy in the future. We have to burn energy. We create economic activity. And that, that allows us profits. So that, that keeps the stock price elevated. So price-to-earnings ratio are based upon earnings in the future. Well, the problem is when energy production starts to decline, and I think we're not going to see small, a small gradual decrease in energy production. It's going to be cliff-like declines, a fall-off, stabilization, fall-off. That's how I see it happening. Well, what does that do to the uh, value of stock? that knows that it's not going to grow. The, the company's not going to grow. What happens to the bond? Well, 30-year bonds, 10-year bonds become, and then even real estate. You've got to pay, most people have a 30-year mortgage. You've got to work 30 years to pay that mortgage off. So the real estate values are going to fall. And so I always say this, gold and silver are a much better store of value because they got their value from burning energy in the past. It took a lot of energy to produce an ounce of gold and silver, and it's, it's stored as economic energy in that coin, gold or silver coin, whereas in most stocks, bonds, and real estate, that you need future growth. You can't, actually, you can't have stagnant growth because with all the debt now, it'll pull it down. So you have to have growth. So the, these are the issues why we're, we're in such a dynamic, uh, we're in such, we're in such a, uh, a conundrum. It's, I call it a predicament. There is no good answer. But the best you could do is, is to prepare for what's coming. Well, I think that the risk when it rolls out of the markets that you've just mentioned and housing and other particular areas, I think a lot of that chases precious metals. I think they look to gold in particular as uh, a way to protect wealth and more so than they did prior to 2008 for sure because it was such a speculative time prior to 2008 that I think now – People have woken up to that idea of protection, but without trying to get too far off topic and staying with the idea of gold and silver, in your early days as an investor, you mentioned you followed analysts such as Butler, Ted Butler, Theodore Butler, as he's uh, sometimes referred to, and David Morgan. One of the reasons for this were their theories and analysis on supply and demand. And of course, as we were talking to oil, that's an important uh, connection. I'd love to get your take on something we watch carefully month after month, and that's the inflows and outflows of gold and silver into and out of ETF holdings. Now, we talk here on the the show, and I'll make no qualms about it, Steve, we're not fans of paper investments. We don't have the same passion for ETFs other than the fact that they're great for research purposes to see what the flows are doing. So I will say that before we continue on. We're fans of physical and physical only, and if you can't touch it, you don't own it. But is there anything that's happening with respect to ETF inflows or outflows that might play a role in higher pricing of gold and silver that definitely relate to demand moving forward? Yes. And as I mentioned, uh, I do believe supply and demand do impact the prices. And I think there's been a, let's say, almost a 50-year, I call it uh, precious metal amnesia. 
ever since we went off the gold standard in 1971. Uh, Americans, as well as the rest of the world, have been bamboozled to, to, be, uh, to believe that the wealth is actually in uh, stocks, bonds, and real estate. And it, it has worked because the energy production has increased. So it, it's worked for 50 years, just like a Ponzi scheme will work for a while. Uh, now, the issue is, uh, I, don't, I, I agree with you, Darren, as, as well, that I don't believe in, in investing in ETFs, but they are a good indicator, and that's how I treat them as an indicator. And I, I just looked at the, uh, what's interesting between the, the, uh, the SLV, or let's say the silver ETF and holdings, and I'm talking COMEX, everything. What's interesting between gold and silver ETFs and holdings, even though gold's increased since uh, it kind of bottomed in 2013 when there was a, a huge uh, liquidation of gold ETFs, it's at now at 90 million ounces. The peak was 105 million ounces during the 2012 period. So we're about 15 million ounces less than the peak of the gold holdings. But silver is kind of different. Back in 2012 during the peak, the gold, there was 900 million ounces of silver held in, in ETS and holdings. Now there's almost a billion. So for whatever reason, investors continue to see that. We don't know if all the metals there, but that, but we could see that the trend is more moving into silver than gold. That being said, I have looked in the past. It's a good indicator. There have been two quarters uh, in the past, Darren, we saw record gold uh, flows into gold ETS. In 2016, when the stock market hit about 18,000, the Dow Jones did, it sold off in the beginning of the year. It fell about 2,000 points. That's it. I mean, I mean about 10%. We saw 350 tons of gold flow into gold ETS. There seemed to be a lot of fear in the market. That was the second highest amount ever. Normally, we'll see, let's say if it flows in, it's 30, 50, 70 tons. That, that's about the average. But we had 350 move in that quarter because investors were really fearful. And these are retail investors, not precious metal investors that buy physical. These were retail investors. The last time we had a, the, the largest record was the first quarter of 2009. Now, what was taking place then? Stock market was selling off. Jim Cramer on CNBC was was pulling his hair out. We didn't have much hair, but he was screaming it was the end of the you know the end of the earth, the end of the world. The market was stock. The stock market was going towards 6,600. The Dow Jones. Well, there was 465 tons of gold that flew into the gold ETF during that period, and that was when. Uh, there was so much fear. So when you compare 465 tons of gold moving into the gold ETFs, that was a lot of demand. And that, uh, that really helped stimulate the price of gold moving up higher because as the markets were selling off, gold and silver were recovering. So if we look at a 350-ton increase on a 2,000-point correction, what is going to happen when this overinflated market that is now 200, the Dow Jones is up 265% since its low in 2009. What happens when that market finally cracks? And from what I've seen, fair value, let's say a fair value without even incorporating the energy production supply falling, we're talking somewhere in the 15,000, 16,000 range. That's, that's fair value, basically, from what I've seen. That's, that's a 10, that's like a 35, 40% uh, uh, correction. I believe that's what's, what's coming. 
I'm not saying it's going to come soon. It seems like it could. 2018 could be the year we finally get this correction. But when we when we see that market crack, wow! I do believe we'll see a lot of gold demand, a lot of silver demand, not only in ETFs as well as physical. And I do believe because the price of gold and silver did increase during that market sell-off in 2016, it already happened. So I do think this time around, even though people are invested in the markets, they know. It, it, they know that it's not something that's going to you know, last forever. And so the, when, the, when the volatility goes the other way, it starts shooting up, I do believe we'll see a lot of fear and a lot of uh, demand into the gold and silver market. I'm on the same page, Steve, as is my colleague Jeremy and the rest of us here at Guildhall, and I'm excited. I want to get there now because I look at gold and silver and I think, what value? I mean, silver might represent the single most undervalued asset in the face of the earth. I'm not sure. But I've heard many people talk about it that way, and I think you're 100% right that this is going to be a unique situation, which if we do a little bit of research, listen to the right people, read the right information, we'll have seen coming ahead of time. So if you're a listener out there, prepare for this. Make the opportunity or take the opportunity to make some time in your schedule to read, to get up to speed, to you know send questions. Talk to people at Guildhall, talk to people like Steve, and find out why we're acting way in advance of these problems occurring, because I think this could be one of the best situations that ever uh, presents itself as an investor to have a legitimate long-term asset category in your portfolio like gold or silver and benefit from it long-term too. I mean, it's protection of wealth, it's the insurance of wealth, it's so much more, Steve, but I would be remiss if I didn't for one second because so many of our listeners ask about these things on a weekly basis. And up here in Canada, we're, we're getting more used to the concept, but it's still not taking hold like perhaps it has in the U.S. And that is cryptocurrencies. Well, I believe that it has been an awesome opportunity for people to speculate in things like Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. And perhaps it's possible that the technologies behind these cryptocurrencies and blockchain and others coming along will have or play a role in our future. Most investors do not understand what money is and how much energy these currencies use or take to create. You recently said, I find this idea of a future modern high-tech world quite amusing when we can't even maintain the failing complex infrastructure we are currently using. Could you give us your thoughts, Steve, on energy usage of cryptos and specifically perhaps related to Bitcoin? Yeah. Earlier last year, I, I came across this uh, one gentleman's work really into Bitcoin, and there's been debate about how much energy that Bitcoin consumes. It ex consumes a lot. However, this gentleman did a, a lot of research, contacted all the miners, and, and uh, really broke it down. And according to his analysis, and I updated it uh, as of November of this year, as of November 2017, uh, Bitcoin was consuming 11.2 terawatts uh, of power. And to, to relate that, uh, Paraguay consumes 11 uh, terawatts a year, and Lithuania is 11.3. Uh, and so it's not like a major, a major country, but as the complexity of Bitcoin to solve these mathematical equations to produce a Bitcoin continue to increase, 
I've seen estimates that they're going to consume more energy than Norway uh, by 2020, 2022. And you see, this is not a good thing. We, we don't need technology that's consuming more energy. And I, I'll give you a comparison. I, I took the energy, most of the, most of the energy that Bitcoin consumes is electricity, but that's not the major part. The major part is, is the expense of miners, these uh, anti-miners that pr- actually solve these equations that make these Bitcoins, as well as the transactions. Uh, they're very expensive. And so when you figure out the cost, yeah, from what I've seen, my estimate is about $3,500 to produce a Bitcoin. And now they're being traded at 11000 12000 That's a lot of profit. Compared to the gold market, where the break-even for gold is eleven fifty, twelve hundred dollars now with the price of oil higher, and they're getting about thirteen hundred. See, there's a little bit of a, a profit for gold, and there's way a huge profit for Bitcoin right now. But the barrels of oil equivalent, if we take all the energy, it takes ten barrels of oil equivalent energy to produce one Bitcoin. It only takes one point four barrels of oil equivalent to produce an ounce of gold. That's it. So it's like eight times less. Well, gold, you know, uh, Bitcoin only functions if the high-tech, high-complex uh, grid works and the Internet works. But you don't, you don't need that for gold and silver. And we know that this would happen in Puerto Rico when, uh, when that massive hurricane came through. What a disaster. I mean, the whole power grid went down there. So... Gold and silver will always be a, uh, a store of wealth because of you don't need a high-complex uh, system. And I want to get to my other point about Bitcoin is a very interesting blockchain technology. I agree with you. I think the uh, blockchain technology does offer us a lot of promise. I don't know if it's going to be a long-term promise because we're running into issues with energy. And let me give you an example. The uh, the U.S. infrastructure by the U.S. Society of Engineers was given a D-plus uh, this year. That was their grade, a D-plus. That's not failing, but that's not a B or even a C. So why, why do we think we're going to move into a new high-tech world with, with, with people making million or billion-dollar uh, Bitcoin profits and we're just going to point and click? No, we still have to, we still have to drive down the road. We have all these issues. And the problem is the infrastructure needs to be repaired and uh, maintained. We don't have the money to do that. So long-term, while I do, mid to long-term, while I do see cryptocurrencies behaving as an alternative, we have to separate their speculation from what their technology offers. And there's even new technology called Hashgraph that might make Bitcoin obsolete. So we have to separate the, the speculation because people aren't getting into Bitcoin and these cryptos because they're great technology. Maybe a few geeks are. They're getting into it like anybody else because they see these huge rising prices. Who doesn't want to miss out on a 3 or 4 or 10 or 15 times their money? That's the reason why they're getting into them. Sure. So that, that's how I see it. I, I, I think the cryptocurrencies, technology, blockchain, Chain technology offers us some interesting solutions in the future, not long term. But I, I do think that this huge speculation is more of a bubble. And I, uh, I think we're going to see continued sell-off in Bitcoin and these other cryptocurrencies over the next several months, year. 
Well, listen, there's no time like the present to take a little bit of profit. And if you've been profitable, remember Guildhall does accept Bitcoin as payment for gold, silver, and natural fancy colored diamonds. It is a good opportunity for you to take a little bit off the table. Put some away in a store of wealth that's going to probably stand the test of time against things like these new technologies that are coming out at you lightning fast. And Steve, in terms of the the next year, two years, three, four, five years, are we basically saying that gold remains an excellent store of wealth, that gold and silver represent great value and that we think long-term because of everything we talked about on today's show that there's going to be, in all likeliness, higher prices in both metals? Yes. And what my analysis offers by focusing on the energy, Darren, and the energy return on investment is different than a lot of, like Peter Schiff, other, other folks talking about the precious metals, even Ted Butler, while I admire what Ted Butler does. Let me give you an example. There is the geopolitics, uh, all the different players and the geopolitics, uh, even Republican, Democrat, uh, it, they're playing on this stage. It's like a theater. And there's, there's conspiracies going on. A lot of websites talk about these conspiracies of each, each kind of uh, team playing against each other, the, the dark state. And that's happening. Uh, that, that's going on. And it's, like it's on a theater. So we're sitting there watching this theater. Now, underneath the theater is the energy, and that's what holds up the theater. Well, the energy will take down the theater, and that's why I focus more on the energy, even though I do find a lot of fascinating things happening with the players. So what I'm looking at is how is the energy going to impact things uh, in the future? And as I mentioned in in our pre-interview, is that uh, people say, well, Steve, can't the Fed and central banks continue manipulating gold and silver like they have in in the last 10, 15, 20 years? They can do it for another 20, 30 years, and that's a great question, and they could. But if you look at what's happening with the energy, as the energy industry is actually cannibalizing itself to stay alive, no, it can't continue because you see that here's the issue. Huge companies, big box store chains like Walmart, large government, they become very problematic as this energy return on investment continues to fall. It continues to fall. That's just the way it's going to happen. And that puts more and more stress on big corporations, uh, big entities, large uh, centralized entities. So they, they can't print their way out of that. It, uh, they couldn't print their way out of the falling uh, Roman Empire. It collapsed. I mean, there was a million people in Rome, ancient Rome, in, in the city before it collapsed. And I've seen figures, it, it went down to 10,000. So you, you can't stop that with continued debasing of a currency. It, it just doesn't happen any longer. So what I see going in the next, let's say, two to five years, I think we're going to start running into big trouble with U.S. shale oil production. And, and, and even in Saudi Arabia, look what's happening in Venezuela. And I'll bring up an interesting point. People look at Venezuela, what happened in Venezuela, it's because of the social government. That's partly true. But if Venezuela was blessed with the same oil that Saudi Arabia had, which was light, sweet, crude, very valuable, they wouldn't be in the same predicament because Saudi Arabia is, is basically they're a, uh, a different version of a dictatorship. But they were blessed with light, sweet, crude. So it's very cheap to produce. Venezuela has heavy, heavy sour oil. 
very expensive to produce. It's one of the more, more expensive. So when the price of oil fell below that $50 range that they needed, it, the lights shut off for Venezuela. Right. That's, that's why they're in hyperinflation. That's why they're eating dogs over there now. It's all based on the energy. So going forward, Darren, I see we're going to see problems with energy. It's going to impact not only the, 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 the stock market, it's going to impact the value of most assets. And at this point in time, this is when people should be in precious metals because what is going to happen with the precious metals is similar to what happened with the cryptocurrencies because there's not much in the way of physical gold and silver to, get, to go around. And, and that's why I think we're going to see a, a huge increase in, in their prices uh, because there's just not enough real store of wealth because when you have real estate that you can't sell, there's no market for it. When you've got all these huge warehouses that we've built that we don't have the energy to keep them uh, as a viable commercial model, who's, you can't sell that. And so gold and silver will be very liquid. Uh, there will be one of the few very liquid assets to own at that time. That's why I'm a, I'm a big believer in, in investing in them now before it's too late. Right. You know, that's the that's the issue. Sure. Okay, well, listen, this is this is enlightening, to say the least, Steve. These are issues that we don't often think about, and certainly it's been a pleasure being able to sit here today and listen to you speak about them, and I'm sure we'll have another opportunity, I hope, in the near future for you to be back on The Real Money Show, and it has been a pleasure having you here today. Listeners, if you've been tuned in and you want to get connected with Steve St. Angelo, I'm going to let Steve tell you how to do so, and of course, if you're looking for information on the Guildhall website, Steve's bio will be there. Everything about today's uh, interview will be there and a connection of how to get in touch with Steve himself. Steve, if you want to let our listeners know, please feel free to do so. Okay, Darren, thank you for the opportunity. I run the SRS Rock Report, talk about precious metals, mining, energy, the economy. I do about two or three articles a week, and you can find it at the SRSRockReport.com. I just started doing YouTube videos because a lot of people, uh, it's hard to explain these concepts. So I think it's easier to, to clearly express them using a video format where I discuss them. So I, I just started doing those. I've got two new videos at the SRS Rock Report YouTube channel. So uh, anybody wants to check it out, uh, I think they can find there's a lot of wealth in the archived information. Great. That's fantastic. Easy way to get there. Again, if you're listening, you want to get in touch with Steve St. Angelo, go to the SRSRockoReport.com and you'll find him there, get a subscription, take a look at the material, and decide for yourself. This is a great in time to get into gold and silver, folks, and it's been a pleasure having you on the show today, Steve. We look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thanks very much. Thank you.